Uh, I just want to say a word about like what what we do when we when we preach every week. You know, week in and week out, we gather on a Sunday, and someone stands up here behind this pulpit and explains what God's word means. Why do we do that? I think I think it's it's helpful to know um, a, a couple things. See, because when we when we do this activity of saying, like, I'm going to come to church every Sunday and sit and listen to someone explain God's word, I'm doing it for a purpose. Well, what is that purpose? What is that? Why? Why would you come and sit here and listen to, listen to someone for 30 minutes to explain this ancient book? It's because as Christians, we believe that the Spirit works through the preaching of the word to shape us to be like Jesus. To help us to know more about God, to become more like his son, and to understand more of his love for us. The width and the depth and the height of his love for us. So we gather to sit here every week. But in doing that, we're also doing something out of faith, which is, which is that we're trusting uh, that whoever stands behind this pulpit is going to tell us the truth. Like, what does the Bible actually mean? And this is important. Because for all the flaws of the person who stands behind this pulpit, and there are, there are many, more today than most Sundays, but there are many flaws of whoever stands behind this pulpit, is that God can use crooked sticks to draw straight lines. Martin Luther said this. He said, God can use crooked sticks to draw straight lines, which means despite all the flaws of the person who stands up here to preach the word, there is something powerful and supernatural that the Spirit does through this activity of opening up the Bible and telling about what it means. But not all churches are very interested in telling what the Bible actually means. In fact, I have more friends than I ever thought I'd have who are involved in this thing that, like the, the, the term now is like deconstructing, right? They're deconstructing from their faith. So they grew up in, in Christianity or they were Christians for a long time and now they're finding that that's not very palatable to them anymore. And so they're getting rid of the things about Christianity that they don't like or they don't find to be true anymore or they just think like they don't, that doesn't resonate with me. I don't want that to be a part of my life. And there's a lot of reasons like that, that are given for deconstructing. Though I find that the beginning, right, the seeds of deconstruction Start with your view of the Bible. Does it actually have meaning and is it actually true? And that's a question that Christians should ask. Does it actually have meaning and is it actually true? And where you land on that question is going to determine a lot about how it shapes you or doesn't shape you. So when Amanda and I considered joining Gospel Life Church... One of the things that really appealed to us, beyond like all the people that we love that already came to Gospel Life Church, one of the things that had to be true of the church that we would join is that they would stand up here, that they would believe the Bible actually is true, actually has meaning, and they would tell us what it is. Week in and week out. And I want to say this because, you know, like, I think sometimes we can be like, we're in the book of Genesis for 17 years. Like, we are never going to finish the book of Genesis. But by God's grace, here we are. We, we made it. 
Why would we do that? We do that because we actually believe the Bible's true. And just like a movie or a book or a TV show, the context helps us understand what that actual meaning of the text is, right? So that it matters, we'll be pretty confused if we read just the ending of the story about Joseph and his multicolored uh, coat. And we, we're pretty confused about like, okay, this guy is the Pharaoh of, of Egypt. But we haven't yet read about how his brothers betrayed him and nearly killed him and sold him into slavery. And how before that, like there was all this treachery and, and, and destruction and sin and betrayal. And yet through all of this, God has kept his promise that started in the book of Genesis. And it would be really hard to understand all those things if we took the passages out of their context. Which means this is why we preach through books of the Bible, which is why next week we're starting the book of Revelation. And we're not just going to be like, here's one chapter of Revelation. And why we know Jesus is coming back on the 34th of March, 2027, you know. Because, like, the, rea- the reality is, like, Revelation needs to be read in its context because it has a meaning, a true meaning that, that we can understand and that will tr- transform us and shape us. It's also why, like, Jeremy's not here today, but we should be thankful for Jeremy. Man, he is, he is faithful to not go along with, like, the, you know, the, the like, path of culture. He's like, no, the Bible, this is what the Bible says. You know, like our society could decide that blue was purple, but like it's not. It's not. This is what the Bible tells us about what life is and who God is and what he's done for us and what we should do as a result. So we come to this passage this morning, and I know, now we're in the Psalms for the last like six weeks or five weeks, I don't remember. Norm knows, he keeps track of this. And you're like, oh, Justin, but you just picked a random Psalm. Okay, but the Psalms are not like Genesis. They, they're, not te- they're not like uh, connected st- stories building off one another. And they're not like the epistles that build off an argument, right? Ephesians starts with the gospel in chapter 1. How we're saved in chapter 2. What that salvation looks like in chapters 3, 4, and 5. See how it builds on itself? This is what a lot of the epistles are like. The Psalms do have a context, though. It's just not necessarily the prior Psalm. We come to verse, uh, to chapter 40, and we know who it's written by. It's written by David. And we know that David went through a lot of hardships in his life, a lot of stuff that we would consider deep struggle. So, here's what I want to argue this morning as we look into chapter 40. I want to argue that the measure of our hope, that our hopefulness, the measure of our hope is is determined by the resiliency of our memory. The measure of our hope is determined by the resiliency of our memory. Okay. This morning, Amanda asked me, we had a, we had a great day yesterday, a great family day. We went to my parents' house. We were outside all the time. Bonnie came with us. Bonnie's our labradoodle. She's she just had a great day. And we go this morning, Amanda, I don't know what made her think of this. She's like, do you think Amanda, do you think Bonnie has, has any memory of yesterday? You know, she <laughs> remember she had a good day. Uh, I was like, I don't know. Memories, memory is an interesting, an interesting thing to think about, both in like how accurate is our memory. Um, but it's also, I think, one of the most formative things about us. What you remember about being a child shapes like whether, you know, you feel good or bad about something. 
We, we know this. We also know that our parents are all flawed, and we're flawed as parents for your parents. So you wound your child, or you have wounds from your parents, even if your parents are awesome, that shape you. You also have, like, good things that your parents give you that shape you in positive ways. Our memory is really, really formative of us. And this is the key to understanding this passage we have before us. As David uh, relies on his memory, he says this as he writes. He says, I waited patiently, first one of chapter 40, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock. And we can guess, you know, like what, is, what's, what scenario is David describing here? Was it when he was hiding from King Saul? Was it another thing, like when he was, you know, like about, he was reflecting on the time he was about to fight Goliath? We don't, we don't know exactly. David doesn't tell us exactly what this miry bog is, what this pit of destruction is. I think that's kind of, that, that can almost be helpful for us. Because we can think in our own life, okay, we don't, we don't have to compare, oh, is my situation like David being hunted by, by a vengeful king? Maybe it doesn't feel that way. But does my situation right now feel like a miry pit? Like a miry bog? Do I feel like surrounded by destruction and chaos? Am I anxious about something in my life? And so we can, we can, get, we can get ourselves into the mindset of David as he, he's waiting patiently for the Lord and he's crying out for help. And this is what the Lord does. He answers him. He hears him. He says, he set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. The thing that David does really well, and I, I always am hesitant to like look to characters in the Old Testament as like heroes because they're all so flawed, apart from God. And, but David does this well, which is that he gets himself into a bad situation we don't know if it's because of his own fault or just like the circumstances. But he responds in the right way, which is that he turns to the right person for help. He turns to God and cries, and God hears him and lifts him up. And this is what happens. Verse 3, God helps him up. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. So David responds to like the Lord getting him out of this situation with a new song. She can't help but sing. Uh, it, it, it wouldn't be a sermon of mine if I didn't mention Wisconsin sports. Here's what happened. A few weeks ago, a few weeks ago, the Milwaukee Bucks won the championship. I don't know if you know this. They're a basketball team, and they're the best basketball team of all time now. And they won the championship. But I went, I drove over to Wisconsin to enjoy the game with, with fellow, my fellow Bucks brethren, okay, at a local Wisconsin establishment. I met my friend there, we watched the game, and as the clock ticked down, and it became clear, like, oh my goodness, how could this happen? But it's happening. The Bucks are going to win. We find ourselves just like, like yelling, screaming, we're hugging strangers in the middle of a pandemic, we're just like... It's just amazing, you know. People are shouting, what is going on? And I realized, like, in that moment, we're both, like, we're looking at each other, we're like this. 
well, I don't know what to do, man. I don't know what to do. You know, like it's, it's so dumb. Okay, it's just farts. <laughs> it's so stupid. But like I couldn't control the fact that I like had this outburst of like joy and energy. This is what David responds with. The Lord rescues him from the situation. He's like, this is what I got to do. I need to sing this new song. The Lord has put a praise in his mouth. Can't do anything else but speak of what the Lord has done for him. Verse 1, he's crying out to help. For help. Verse 3, he's singing with joy. The only difference in the, in verse 1 and verse 3 has nothing to do with how great David is. How smart David is. David is a man, man after God's own heart. Oh wow, if I want to be saved, I need to be like David. No. David goes from crying to singing because of God's actions. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog. He set my feet on a rock, making my steps secure. And God helps him, and now he can't help but sing. The next three verses of this passage tell us the lyrics to David's song. Verse 4. Blessed is the one who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell them, yet they are more than can be told. And we've talked about blessing a few, uh, man, it was a while ago. We went through a Sermon on the Mount. And Jeremy helped explain that when the Bible uses the term blessing, it's not, it's not referring to like material, uh, hey, I got, all, I got all this stuff. I have this, this financial blessing. I have this, this like relational blessing with these people, like good friends. Whatever it is, you know, the status or standing or power. But when the Bible talks about being, being blessed, it's really talking about like our relationship with God is right. It's the core of blessing. It's like that we know our Creator, our Heavenly Father. We have this relationship with Him that's been mended, that's good. And so he says, blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. This, see, this goes in line with like what it does it mean to actually be blessed? It says, you trust the Lord. And because it's in the context of the Lord, David here, he puts up this, this billboard like in blinking lights. Here, how do you diagnose if you are or aren't blessed? If you're feeling blessed or not? How do you, how do you know whether you're actually blessed? He says, because you have made the Lord your trust. But he compares it, he compares it to something else, which is those, um, verse 4, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. Another, another like the NIV would translate, who go, turns aside to false gods. That would be a person who is not blessed. So someone could be incredibly, like, they could have incredible wealth, power, fame, all of these things. But they wouldn't be blessed if their trust was put in something else. The Bible would not call them Blessed. Which is so interesting, right? Because a lot of times when we compare whether our life is good or bad, we compare it on the basis of those things. Our health and our status. Family. Uh, was with my friend and he, he, he roasts his own coffee beans. Okay? Every day. He roasts his coffee beans for the next morning. And I took a sip of that coffee and it was like, the light turned on, you know? The, the heavens opened. It's amazing, right? And then you drink Folger's coffee. 
There was a time in my life where I liked Folgers coffee, okay? A little milk, a little sugar. It's awesome, right? I think I was like a young man, okay? I didn't know. I didn't know what I was missing. Then I had my friend's coffee. And it was like, whoa, it's amazing. And I no longer want Folgers coffee, right? I no longer have desire for Folgers coffee. It was good in one season. I thought that's what I wanted, but then I had the real deal stuff. Brothers and sisters, this is what idolatry is like. They may, they may seem good in the moment, but when we experience the joy that Jesus offers, it gives us the strength to turn aside, and we no longer desire these false things. We no longer think about it. I'm not like, I wake up in the morning, I'm not thinking about Folgers coffee ever again, right? So it is in our relationship with Christ that he's so much better that when we turn to him, when we trust him, we can actually say we're blessed because these other things that the world offers that used to satisfy us or we thought would satisfy us no longer measure up. This is also how we find freedom from sin. We find something better, something more rewarding, something that satisfies us more deeply so that we're able to turn away from our sin and turn towards the Lord. This is how we find that we're blessed. And, and David says he's, he's understanding that he's blessed by putting his trust in the Lord and not by humans, despite the fact that he found himself in this tough situation. He continues to reflect on what God has done in verses 6 through 10. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law, your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips. As you know, O Lord, I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. You open my ears. I'm in a stage right now of realizing that I'm becoming my dad. I know this because I say things unknowingly that are exactly what he would say. And most of them have to do with like talking to my kids. One of the things I would say is like, the girls just learned how to, they, they learned how to read, now that's all they do. They have an addiction to reading. It's really horrible. They won't watch Bucks games with me because they'd rather read about their fairy princess books. It's terrible. But I say, like, oh, it's time for dinner. Nothing. It's time for dinner. Come to the table. Nothing. Girls, girls, come on. It's time. Girls, is there something plugged in your ear that I need to clean out for you? It's like, oh, no. That's what my dad said to me. <laughs> you know? Another one is this. Listen to your mother. Listen to your mother. Which I think my dad said to me yesterday. Again, so. And I say this to my daughters. I was like, and when I, when I say, listen to your mothers, or, or when I say, hey, you need to, do I need to clean out your ears? You know, it's like the psalmist here, he says, you have opened my ears. Not just, not just so that we could hear, but that we could listen, right? When I say listen to your mom, I'm not saying hear the words coming out of your mouth. I'm saying hear the words and do what she's telling you to do. The same is true in our walk with the Lord. So that he opens our ears to hear what he has to say. And then he, he doesn't want us to just hear and then carry on with our life like nothing happened. 
He desires that our lives would be changed. Which is why, again, we come to the to church every Sunday to hear the word, hoping that our lives would be changed so that we'd be more like Jesus. Here's, a, here's, what, here's what the result is of God opening uh, David's ears. He says, he says, look, uh, I delight to do your will. Your law is in my heart. I tell glad news of deliverance to people. I don't restrain my lips. I'm not hiding your deliverance within my heart. My Christianity is not only known to me. It's known to other people. They're aware that I believe in you and they they know that I believe in you because of how I treat people. I've spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I've not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness. The Lord opened David's ears and he was changed as a result. Play. Um, here's the thing. I think some people come to church out of habit. You know, that's what I grew up doing. Some people come to church out of obligation. It's what I'm supposed to do. And like I, I'm a Christian, so I'm supposed to go to church. My prayer for for us is that we would come to church because we want to be transformed by the gospel. That we, we actually believe something happens in this room when we come and sit like under the word. And we'd be changed in such a way that we would be a better husband. You know? Like I come to church because I want to be a better dad and being more like Jesus will make me a better dad. We come to church because I want to be a better student. I want to be a better friend. And I, and I actually believe the Bible will, tra- will transform me. Not, not like some of my own effort, but the Spirit working through it. And so, when we come to the passage, like, and we hear with open ears, and the Lord, the Lord opens our ears to what, what he says, we're changed. We're not just hearing, we're listening. But there's a, um, a tension that comes with the Christian life. See, see, I think it's a trap to say like, okay, someone comes to faith and they're a totally different person. They go from being a horrible sinner to a perfect angel. We know that that's not our experience as Christians. Often we go from being a horrible sinner and the Lord changes us to be a slightly less worse sinner. It's like the reality of the Christian life. And the longer you're a Christian, the more aware of your sin you become. The longer you're a Christian, the more aware of Jesus' like perfect holiness you become. You you understand. And this gap between like my growing awareness of his holiness and my growing awareness of my own sinfulness and the gap between us growing is, is actually how growth as a Christian happens because we start to understand more and more just how much Jesus accomplished when the cross bridged this gap between his holiness and our sinfulness. But it's difficult to say, I've been a Christian now for 15 years. How come I still sin like this? How come I still sin like this? When God opens our ears, he continues to save us. See, this is something that I think is like misunderstood sometimes. We are saved right, when we place our faith in Christ, and then we continue to be saved by his Spirit's work 
in our life as he opens our ears. And the fruit of us continuing to be saved is that we tell people of the glad news of deliverance. It's that we don't restrain our lips. It's that we delight to do his will. It's that we don't hide that he saved us from people. It's that we speak of his faithfulness. And so we keep that in mind. David has been brought out of the miry pit, right? This is what he says. He set his feet on the rock, so his life must be good now. Except we keep reading. And he says, as for you, Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Don't, don't, don't withhold your mercy, he's saying. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me for evils have encompassed me beyond number. Well, I thought your feet were on the rock, David. You're still surrounded by evils? Not only that, but my iniquities have overtaken me. You're still struggling with sin, David? This is after the Lord has delivered him from the pit of destruction. After he's been brought up from the miry, miry pit, bog. Be pleased to save me, Lord. Come quickly, Lord, to help me. This is after the Lord has saved him. The life of a Christian is to be saved. To remember that salvation, to let that salvation change you, and to rely on the Lord to continue saving you and to continue telling others about this salvation. It's a paradox, and it's difficult that even though we put our faith in Christ, life doesn't become perfect. In fact, sometimes it becomes, it becomes difficult because we're Christians. But David explains not only does he need God's mercy for his sin, but he also needs God's mercy from his enemies. Verses 14 through 15 carry this on. May all who want to take my life be put to shame and confusion. That's the NIV. And the ESV puts it this way. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch my life away. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor and delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, aha, aha. See, there's people that are accusing David, that are coming after David, that want him to fail, that want him to be destroyed. This is after he's been saved from the miry bog. There's both the internal struggling of our sin that we need to be saved from and there's the external circumstances of this broken world that we need to be saved from that we cry out for help for god this is uh this is like a really um real and common and practical part of the Christian life that we can go to God to save us from whatever circumstances we find ourselves in and we can trust that he will eventually. Verse 1, he says, I waited patiently for the Lord. God didn't save him immediately from whatever this miry bog was. And he may not save us immediately from where, what, whatever situation we find ourselves in. And when he doesn't save us immediately, when he doesn't deliver us from whatever thing we're struggling with, whether it's the sin inside of us or the circumstances around us, what's going to keep us being hopeful? What's going to keep us turning to the Lord? What's going to give us hope? I have a friend 
Um, his name is Glenn Olson. I, he, uh, in the last year, okay, he got prostate cancer. He was in a significant car wreck that left him in the hospital, and he had significant financial loss because of uh, some of the like fallout from COVID cancellations. And we go out to lunch, and Glenn sits across from me, and he says to me, and he's like, tears are in his eyes, and he says, this is, God is so good to me. God is so good to me because he's given me these opportunities to trust and to pray and to grow an awareness of like my need and to grow an awareness of how he meets my needs. It's like not everything is fixed for Glenn, but he's so grateful. He's so grateful that he gets to trust. How do you get to that point? How, how do you get the kind of unshakable joy that Glenn has, the kind of hope that, that Glenn has? David can say these things that he faces, all of these things, these enemies that want to destroy him, the sin that's overtaking him, the miry bog that he just got saved from, and now he's in more trouble. And he, he still finishes with joy. He says, May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who long for your saving help always say, The Lord is great. In the midst of also saying in verse 17, But as for me, I'm poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. You're my help, my deliverer. You're my God. Don't delay. How is it possible to maintain these two things at once? That we are poor and needy and that God is our deliverer. That we are still struggling with sin, still in a hard circumstance, but we're going to turn to God for hope. I think the answer is in our remembrance. I want to go back to verse 5. David says, You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet there are more that can be told. There are more that can be told. The, the, the resiliency of David's hope is, is built on the strength of his memory of what the Lord has already done for him. He saved me from the miry bog. He can save me when my enemies say, aha, aha, I want you destroyed. He set my feet upon the rock. He can save me despite the sin that overtakes me. Look at all that he's done. I can't help but live for him. Even in the midst of still struggling, even though I'm still poor and needy, I'm going to tell others how awesome God is and he's been in my life. Okay, back in... um, in 1 Samuel, not long, before, not long before David comes on the scene, uh, God delivers Israel this powerful way of victory. And Samuel takes this rock and he calls it his Ebenezer stone. And he says, he says we're going we're to have this stone to help us remember what the Lord has done. And Ebenezer is a, is a Hebrew word. It means thus far the Lord has helped us. Thus far the Lord has helped us. I want you to take out the blank sheet of paper uh, that I gave you in your pen. I want you to draw, okay, hold it the normal way, you know, like vertically. I want you to draw a rock in the center of your page. And I want you to draw a line from the center top down all the way to the bottom, like a, the long way in the center to make two columns, one on each side of this rock. 
on the right side, in the right column. Okay? I want you to, to title that column Miry Bog. And in that column, I just want you to think and to scribble down shortly. I'll give you like a minute. The things that make you anxious, the things that bring you pain, the things that you're afraid of, the circumstances that you wish would change, the sin that you struggle with. You can do that now. Just take, just take a minute. Just scribble it down. It shouldn't be hard. We know, you know, like, we, we live on planet Earth. It, like, it's, it's pretty easy to make a list of these things. It's the Myri Bug. All right, you can continue. You can continue writing later on. I'm sure, like, there's enough to fill the page. But on the left side of the column, I want you to write the ways that the Lord has been faithful to you, the things He's already delivered you from, the ways that He's good to you that you don't deserve, the reasons you can trust Him. the times that he's been there for you. The grace that he's already given you. This left side of the column is the Ebenezer side. Thus far the Lord has helped me. I'm going to give you just a minute to write down as many of those things as you can, knowing that just like David, there's too many. You, you can continue to make that list as you want. 
But this is, this is how we remain hopeful in a broken world. Is to strengthen our memory of the God who fixes broken things. Look at the list on the left. Like how many awesome things has he already done for you? So cast your anxieties on him. Trust him to forgive you of your sin. Trust him that whether in, whether in this life or when he returns, he's going to fix all that is broken. He's going to make all things new. He's going to completely, completely redeem all that's been wrecked by sinful people like us. Our, our, the strength of our memory, like, it leads to the resiliency of our hope so that in the times where we need to cast our trust for help somewhere, we cast it to God. This is not like something that just happens a few times in the Bible. It's a theme throughout all Scripture. You know, the, the, most, the most common command in the Bible is to not be afraid. The second most common one is to remember. Remember. Remember what the Lord has done. Remember me. Remember this. And we even find it in the Lord's table. So that Jesus says... He gives us bread and wine. Why? So we could remember what he's done for us. Why? So that we could have hope for when he comes again. Listen to this. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took the bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.